Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each Sunday, you'll join us at the Messiah Lutheran Church Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we are continuing our series in the book of Matthew titled, Living the Life of the Beloved and the Belonged. Enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good move. That's a good move. All right, so let's, uh, we get into our study for today. Now, we have finished the Beatitudes part of Matthew 5. And one of the things, you know, that I encourage you to do is after, like during the week, but after class or before the class of the next week, if you have any questions or anything or any comments or anything like that, feel free to email me or leave anonymous phone calls, you know, however you want to do it. But uh, Bob Orr, um, he sent me an email because he's one of the guys who's, uh, whose thoughts about these things go way deeper a lot of times than, than mine do. And he reads, how did you say that? You read old dead people? Is that how you do it, the writings of that? I play royalties on their books. Yeah, that's what you do. Okay. So anyway, he was reading St. John of, how do you say that? Christoster. Christostom. Yeah, Christoster for son, I think is how it was. Yeah. Anyway, um, would you share with the group what you, what, what he said about the Beatitudes and kind of a sequential sort of thing? Would you do that? Hmm? I can read it for you. Yeah, that'd be fine if you read that. That'd be fine. Yeah. He starts off with, this is his homilies on the, on the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah. And uh, he was a compatriot of Augustine mm-hmm. about the year 400. He says, therefore, summing it up, you see in each instance by the former precept making way for the following one. He hath worn a sort of golden chain for us Thus first, he that is humble will surely also mourn. For his own sins, he that so mourns will also be meek and righteous and merciful. He that is merciful and righteous and contrite will of course also be pure at heart. And such a one will be a peacemaker too. And he that hath attained unto these will moreover array against dangers and will be troubled when evil is spoken, will not be troubled when evil is spoken of him, and he is enduring grievous trials innumerable. Yes. In other words, the whole Beatitudes are woven together into one form. Yeah. So I put it up on the board. See that straight line I put on the board with the little dots on it. So that's like it, what it's saying, and, and I appreciate that, is there's like a sequential linkage. To, these are not standalone things, you know, blessed are you, blessed are you. It's a linkage. And so one def- definitely builds on the other. One is linked to the other, if you will. And so some, to, in some sense, we shouldn't be surprised then when the last of the Beatitudes occurs, which is blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. And yet it's, it's always amazing to me how shocked we are that that would happen. Oh, it's so not fair. Oh, why should I have to suffer for my faith? Oh, why, why, doesn't, why don't people accept me as I am? I mean, we, we, these, this is the litany of things that we go through as if somehow we ought to be shocked by this. We should be stunned. No, this is part of the blessed life. And when you have that blessed life, not everybody gets it. Not everybody appreciates it. And that becomes, see, then the opportunity that we have to be, as we're going to talk about today, the salt and the light. Because it's when those difficult moments come, those hard times hit us, when 
the, when life isn't fair and it's because of your faith, right? How you handle that moment will to a large degree have an impact on somebody else who is watching and you didn't know they were. And they're going to reach out in some way and they're going to say, I don't know how you do that. How do you do that? How do you handle that? Why didn't you just kill the guy? You know, I mean, it's stuff like that, right? And that doesn't mean that we're always going to handle it perfectly because sometimes we're going to handle it poorly. Sometimes we're going to think that in that moment, it's only between me and the person who's doing that to me. And we're not even thinking about the witness aspect. We're not even thinking about anything except that it hurt or that it was terrible that it happened, right? And we're going to react. And, but, you know, it always happens. When we react, there's some other voice from somewhere else that said, oh boy, so that's how Christians do it. And then you get smacked, right? God smack, right? But the good news is, is that we can actually go to that person and repair that with that person. We can repair the impact that we had in that moment. And what happens when you repair is that reopens the door to have a conversation. So see, it, even when we blow it, that doesn't need to be the end of that interaction with somebody. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's really, a, it's really a great thing. So Bob, thank you for that. And I love the quote. Thank you so much for that too. All right. So uh, let's get into from last session. So persecution for your faith. We shouldn't um, be surprised at it. And it comes in direct and indirect forms. Remember, we talked about that. So an example of direct persecution is what? Being put in jail. Yeah, or just some form of someone resisting or someone uh, opposing the faith, and you see it right there, and that person is doing it, or that entity is doing it, all right? Indirect form is kind of more where you're living, you have your spiritual space, you're living your life, you're doing your Christian thing, and then someone else in an indirect way seeks to influence or limit what you can do in your space, right? So if you're a Christian teacher, or if you're a Christian legislator, or if you're a Christian person who, who operates in the realm of the state, okay, sometimes the state gets it in its head that, that Christianity is not a good thing. So we will limit your ability to do that in your space. And we see in certain areas where that's becoming uh, more and more common. Secondly, the Beatitudes reveal the confidence you can have in God's promise that you are his beloved and that being beloved does not, I don't know who typed this, does not, somebody put not in there, being beloved or being loved does not change with circumstance. How you feel about being loved is not the indicator of whether you are or not. And that's, I think, an important message that we can keep saying to people over and over again. Because the reality is, in this life, and in human relationships that we have, it's very difficult to find consistent a consistent sense of being loved. It's just that way with humans. Because sometimes we mess up and, you know, then the person says, well, I love you, but I don't like you, you know, and here's to prove it, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and so if we, if we base our being loved by God on our experience with humans, it's always going to be up and down. It's always going to be questioned in our minds. And so that's why we have to remember that what you experience in life, either from a human perspective or just from life itself, is, um, can enhance the idea 
of being loved. But that's not the, that's not the litmus test. The litmus test that we are loved by God is what? Jesus. Jesus. And that's the thing that we keep turning back to. If you are not confident that you are loved, then a soul level pressure will permeate your life. So in other words, what that means is that, is that if I'm not sure I'm loved, I got to find it somewhere and I'll end up finding it in wrong places. I'll throw myself into my work thinking, well, okay, I'm not loved, but at least I'm worth something because I work, 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 or I achieve, achieve, achieve. I perform, I perform, I perform, which many people do and are quite good at it. But that never quite fills that deep inner longing at the soul level where really all you really want is to know that you're loved and that you belong to God and that no matter what, he forgives you. So that's the kind of stuff that really only God through Christ can provide for us. Okay, you with me so far? Okay, so now we get into... Uh, verse 13 of uh, Matthew 5, where Jesus is going to uh, uh, give to us a couple of analogies or, or metaphors uh, at, in terms of what it means for us in our Christian walk. So he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under foot. How many of you uh, are on a salt-free diet? How do you feel about that? You love it. You're like the one person I've ever talked to who loved it. Okay. Yeah. See, so salt is, you know, uh, when it's kind of have to be removed from your diet, too much sodium, that sort of thing. Well, then, you know, at first, initially, you, you, you might miss it. All right. So when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, it's a good thing. So we think in terms of what salt was and the value the salt was more in Jesus's day, maybe than we think about it today. By the way, Tom, what do you use as a salt substitute just out of curiosity? Nothing. You are a true warrior to be admired by all. Yes. I use that dash, you know, that, uh, Salt substitute, that's pretty good. That's actually pretty good. All right. So you're the salt of the earth. All right. So in Jesus's day, salt was a treasured commodity. That's the first thing. So when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, what are you saying about you? You are a treasured commodity. Wow. You're something that's highly valuable. Well, but in Jesus's day, there were three benefits that salt would bring. By the way, how did they get salt? Do you know? Oh, they get it. So they had the big C right there, all right, so they could pull it in, right, dry it out, all right. But there was another way. Uh, they also had salt mines, and so they would mine it. And when they mined it, and that kind of makes a little bit more sense here, when they would mine it, then the, the salt crystals would be attached to rock, all right. And so then because it's attached to rock, you just use it up, and then when the salt is all gone, it's, it's dissolved off the rock, well, then you just have this rock. And so that's why Jesus says that when the salt has lost its saltiness, well, then you just have this rock. What are you going to do with the rock? So you throw it out. And what he means here in terms of trampled underfoot was that the Romans took that rock, and they used it as the, the bed, the foundation for their roads. And so I, I've, I've not been over there, but I've had some people tell me who have traveled to, uh, to Italy 
say that some of those roads are still in existence, right? That's pretty, that's pretty solid stuff, right? And that was how stable that, uh, that particular thing was. So it's, Jesus is not saying that it loses its worth and value. It's that the, the, the purpose for that changes. That's what he's saying. All right. I read an article the other day about the salt over in Grand Saline. The salt where? Grand Saline, Grand Texas. Saline. Oh, Grand Saline, Texas? There's enough salt there to last us for thousands of years. Where's Grand Saline? Does somebody know that? One hour, one hour east of East of here? You can go over there and lick on the buildings there, and it's okay, because it's... <laughs> well, it probably is in the air, and it probably is everywhere. It, it, the salt mine is 20,000 feet deep. It's as high as Mount McKinley. Wow. So it'll be, they'll be drilling. Uh, Morton Salt Company will be there forever. Yeah. There may not be any of the rest of us around there, but, you know, that's... Yeah, that's a good point. Very good. Okay. Salt of the earth. All right. So there's three things that salt does for us. All right. The first thing is that it, it is an instrument or a, a vehicle of purity. So the Romans believed that salt was the purest of elements because it came from two primal sources if you got it from the sea, right? If you, if you harvested it that, uh, that way. So the beloved life principle number 13 is... You are salt in the earth when your belovedness with Jesus makes such a distinctive impression, other people may ask, A-S-K, about the source of your inner strength. So let me ask a question this way. What difference has being loved by God made in your life? What difference has that made? Now, if you say everything, I'm going to make you say more than just everything. Okay. Yeah, everything is true. But in what specific way has that made a difference for you? Yeah, Mary Jo. Uh, not worrying about death. Not worrying about death. Okay. And what then has not worried, being worried about death, what difference has that made for you? I think uh, just... Anxiety. I don't know. I think as I've grown in my faith, when I was younger, yeah. you know, I had that fear of death. But now as I've become a mature Christian, I don't have that fear anymore. Yeah. So the difference is a, I don't know, comfort, not comfort maybe, but just a, it's one less thing to have to worry about and you can go through your life not worried about it. Maybe that's what that is. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Jake. I would say my patience with people. Your patience with people is the diff- a difference that that has made, right? And now because you're more patient, what difference has that made? People like you more? Is that kind of what's happened? Yeah? Yeah. Should we check the other opinion there with that? Yeah. Is he more patient? That's the question. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Very good. What other, what, what else have you noticed? Carl, what have you noticed? I've noticed a, a massive transition in my life uh, to the, the fruits of the Spirit. Okay. By the way? Just, you know, the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, the, all those? Yeah. From, from the, the antithesis of, of those points. Yeah. From, uh, from being angry to being yeah. calm, you know. Those. Meek. You know, we use that word meek, you know, that, to think of that. Yeah. And so the difference that that has made for you is what? Well, my whole life has taken on a whole positive attitude instead of addressing the negatives. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. It's an amazing transition. Sure. Yeah. It, it, it took time. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, Martha. 
I think this uh, addresses a little bit of what you guys were talking about initially too. I think it gives you an inner security. Yeah. And and so where you might, if you didn't have that feeling, would be have a block or a space where you worry about every little thing. Yeah. But if you have inner security, you're free to use that. Yes. In other ways. That's right. It's kind of like the difference between. If, if you go through life always looking over your shoulder, afraid to make a mistake versus not that you don't care. It's not that that would be the extreme, but it's more that you have that sort of quiet confidence that even if you did make a mistake, it wouldn't be the end of the world. And even if somebody told you that you, you know, were worthless or whatever, you wouldn't believe that you would, there, there would be a, almost a, uh, like a spiritual wall around you that would keep you from believing mean things that people say, even when you mess up. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Gina. For me, it, makes, it gives me comfort that this, this life that we're going through now, this is temporary. This yeah. is not the end result. Right. That heaven is our end result. Sure. Is, we're not people of this world. Right. And we'll get to be reunited with the loved ones that we've lost, mm -hmm. that are believers also. Mm -hmm. And it's just, this is just our stomping ground. Yeah, we can get a little attached to this world, don't you think? You know, and a bit uh, consumed by making sure that everything's okay in this life. And not that, I mean, it's okay to do that, but it's just, you can get overly focused on that and we lose, we lose perspective, don't we? Okay. So yeah. All right. So see, that makes that difference. And the point I'm trying to make is when that difference is apparent, Okay, when it's visible, when it's there, somebody else is going to notice. And when somebody else notices, then we go to this next verse here in 1 Peter 3.15, the second part of it, where he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. See, see, that's what being loved does, is it, is it grows a sense of hope in you. That's, that goes way beyond experiences in life because that hope is a creation of God's spirit in you and it leaks out. And as it does that, what happens is people are drawn to that. They just don't know what it is. So you'll find people sometimes will say, you know, there's just something about you. I can't figure out quite what it is. What is it? And you want to be prepared to give some sense of Something beyond, I don't know, you know, I mean, you may not know, but just make something up. I mean, come on, that's, that's your, that's the opportunity, right? So he says, always be prepared, but then make sure that you do it. How? With what? Gentleness and respect. So you, you want there to be a continuation of that conversation. You don't want it just to be, you ask a question, I give the answer and then we all walk away. All right. It, it, it didn't, doesn't work that way. And that's the opportunity then to do that. All right. But notice what he starts that verse with in first Peter three fifteen. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. So we're going to talk about a little bit about reverence. Okay. Because it's kind of interesting in our world today, many people would say that the whole notion of reverence has kind of gone out the window, or at least it has been redefined in such a way that we have a hard time recognizing it. Those of us that have lived, you know, longer than 30 years, we, we, we remember what reverence looked like when we were kids. I'm sure I'll get a mitful of it uh, for the next two weeks at, at St. Paul, but, uh, 
you know, what does that mean and what does that look like? I love this quote from uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes. I might have entered the ministry of certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. All right. Yeah, that's hilarious. I mean, to some degree, and maybe some of you grew up with that. I remember going to my grandfather's church. So my grandfather, both my grandfathers were Lutheran pastors. I did not know my grandfather on my dad's side because he died when my dad was like a teenager. So that, that I didn't get to know him, but I knew my grandfather on my, uh, my mom's side. And I remember the worship services in, in Okarchi, Oklahoma, which was like, it's this little bitty town just North and West of Oklahoma city. And, and Okarchi, St. John Lutheran and Okarchi uh, was like the mother church for the Oklahoma territories, as they said in those days, all right? And so there were always, you know, this sort of thing of, you know, what, what does that mean to be the mother church? Well, that kind of means that you set the tone and you set the example for everybody else, all the other churches that are daughtered off of you, okay? Uh, just a little history here. I think Zion is that for here in Dallas. Is that, do I have that right? The Zion Lutheran? Uh, is that or became that for a lot of the churches around here, including including this one back in the uh, cross was the mother church for Prince of Peace. Okay, so see, there's always some growing that goes on and some uh, expanding that goes on. So what I want to just visit with you a little bit about and get some sense from you is this idea of reverence because that is part of the worship wars that are being fought in many denominations today. And Lutheran is no exception to that. LCMS is no exception to that. That there are a lot of people of good faith, good heart, who are very, uh, very passionate about this idea of what reverence looks like and what it shouldn't look like. And, and what ends up happening is reverence gets pitted up against entertainment. Okay? And people say, well, certain things are entertainment and certain things are... are uh, our uh, reverence. And so I want to talk a little, just talk a little bit, bit about that. So an example of that would be like, uh, there are some churches that clap in church. I know heresy, right? And now in our church it's very interesting. Okay. Because in our church clapping after the choir would sing or a, a, uh, a solace would sing or the kids would sing is clapping only happened in the late service. Okay. And so if you are a clapping person, you would go to the late service. That's how that would work, right? And so then all the clappers would gather together in the late service. That's, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. And then there would never be clapping in the early service. Well, what happened this morning in the early service when the kids sang, after they sang? Everybody clapped. So we have some infiltrators from the late service (laughs) who have infiltrated the early service And now the early service claps. But in some settings, Lutherans are rolling over in their graves if there's any kind of clapping that would go on, because for them, that's a lack of reverence. For them, it feels like, oh, entertainment. Somebody's up there, they're singing, they're entertaining, just like you would go to the concert, and then you would clap after that. So those associations are made, and for a lot of us, they happened like when we were little and that the values of those things then become part of your DNA. And then you get older and you say, Oh, I'm going to do what I want to do. But even if you do it, 
you might experience this. I do. I know I do. There's this tiny little voice in the back of my head when people clap in church. And by the way, I love it when we do it after the kids and it doesn't matter to me what service it is. Um, but there's tiny little voice that says, no, 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 no. All right. And that's that little voice that, you know, you grow up with when you're a kid, when you're a little bit of a kid and somebody said, oh no, we never clap in church. Okay. So that's kind of interesting change there. Yeah. That's about it. I, I was raised in the Lutheran church. We were taught and told not to clap. Not to clap. Not to clap. Not to clap. Yes. Yeah. So I have that little You have a louder voice maybe in you. Yeah, I know it. We all, I mean, if you, were, if you were raised with this, which I was, and many of us were, that's where we go with it. Now, the key is you don't have to listen to that voice. Okay. You, you certainly want to recognize that. Who said that? <laughs> who, who said that? Do we have some do we have some Catholics in here? What's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Anna. Well, you know the flip side is you're encouraging those people. Oh sure. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. If you notice the choir is shrunk, the little kids' choir is really small. Yeah, they're getting older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what I mean is we don't have many kids. Today, sure. So we want to encourage them. No, that's what I'm saying is that, see, again, you're weighing the idea of encouraging. You weigh that. As opposed to entertainment. You know, you're saying it's entertainment if you clap. I'm saying it's encouraging. Yes. It's a positive. Do you, now, do you hear me saying that if you clap, that's entertainment? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying I was raised with that. Okay. Yeah. And so I always have this inner dialogue. You know, the the little voice on this side is going, no, 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 no. And the little voice on this side is going, yes, 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 yes. So, you know, that's just a sort of contradict. uh, And this is all happening, by the way, when I'm walking up to read the lesson. Okay. (laughs) So if you see this goofy look on my face, you'll know that there's this inner dialogue that's, uh, that's going on. Yeah, Glenn. I was raised Pentecostal. It took me forever to get used to Lutheranism because it's such a change. Oh, yes, Pentecostal is way different, and you were raised with that. Yeah. So see, again, if you come out of a different faith tradition where the expression of worship is very, like, obvious, you know, I mean, it, in some Lutheran churches, if you smile... I mean, come on, you're not even being, you know, reverent, but that's that idea that this is a reverent thing. So we don't smile, we don't laugh. And that would have, would have been a different uh, tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Another one is pastors telling stories and sermons. When I went through the seminary, don't tell stories. That's too entertaining. Don't tell jokes. Stick with the word. Okay. But by the time we all got out, we realized that if you do just that, nobody's paying attention. So there is some sense of, you know, that, that sort of thing. Praise bands up in front of the chancel. We don't do that, but there's a lot of churches where they do that. And the people that don't like it will often say that's entertainment. So you see, to some degree, we sometimes will justify what we already believe and say, oh, that's just entertainment, right? Or, oh, that's just boring, right? We'll do that. And that doesn't necessarily make it so, but that's the position that people often take. Video screens. How many of you really like the video screens? Oh my gosh, I love that. Yeah. No, not, you don't have to. You don't have to. And there are some churches where, Lutheran churches, for example, that they will not in a million years do any kind of screen. 
Okay. That's their expression of how they do worship and what reverence looks like to them. See what reverence looks like to them is going to be maybe a little different in terms of what reverence looks like to us. Right. And the thing we have to be careful of is that we're not accusing each other of being irreverent, right. Or not reverent just simply on the basis of the fact that uh, some people do it a little bit differently than we do. Okay. Yeah. During Palm Sunday, mm-hmm. when the cantata was, yeah. the, on that Sunday, the congregation clapped ever, after every song that the choir sang. Yeah. And I felt that we, you kind of lost, got lost in the mood of it. Oh, yeah, it can happen. Uh, yeah. I mean, here we were listening to all this beautiful, reverent mm-hmm. music and everything, and all of a sudden all this clapping, and think, what are we doing? What? Well, it's, again, it's... Yes, Lord, we're hearing you. Okay. He's agreeing. I don't know what nerve we just touched, but yeah. But, you know, again, uh, probably with clapping in particular, there probably is some training that needs to occur. Because, you know, if you go to a rock concert versus a symphony... See, I always get nervous going to symphony because I don't know when it's my turn to clap. So I just wait for somebody else to clap. And I think they have trained clappers there. (laughs) No, I think they do because I think they know where a movement ends and you don't interrupt the movement with clapping and you wait till the end. And maybe that's just when the conductor turns around. Maybe that's when it is. And he goes like this. Well, then that's the answer. Okay. Yeah. I think education needs to happen with the clapping. Yeah, maybe so. Um, you're saying thank you for the performance that you just did. Yes. But, um, when the kids are taught or when adults are singing, that's their praise to God. Right. So when you clap, somehow yeah. you take away from the fact that it was your gift to God. Wait a minute. If you clap, then it was just my gift to get the applause. Well, I wouldn't put that judgment on there. I would not put that judgment on there. I, I see the danger of that. I, I do. I see the the, the message that can get sent. Okay. But, but, uh, I don't want us to get into a fist fight too much this morning. <laughs> if we could save the fist fight for after class, I think that would be much better. Um, but what I'm, my point is, is that, that it is true that we send messages to people way more than we think. And what we do does send a message. So one way to get around that is to sort of educate and to say, well, you know, this is why we're clapping. And this is why, you know, if you come from a church that's way more traditional, Lutheran church, way more traditional, and you come into our church, okay, first of all, some people are blown away by the fact that we kneel during the confession. So I've had, I didn't grow up with kneeling, okay? And there's some people that come into our church and they go, ooh, Catholic, because you're kneeling, Right? Well, no, we're not. We're just Lutheran and we do kneeling. See, so we have to be careful that we're not sort of presupposing, a, making a judgment about why people do what they do. But we do need to maybe be mindful that maybe not everybody knows why we do what we do so we can say why we do what we do. Okay? So I don't want to belabor this too much more than we already are. When you say, when you come up with those little people on your shoulder. Yes, the little people. Yes. And I'd say that we add our praise to theirs mm-hmm. um, by um, oh, applause. That's an interesting way of saying that. I never would have thought to do that. Can you write that down for me? <laughs> no, no. Actually, I'm serious about that because I, I script a lot of those things that I say in between 
I write down little notes because otherwise my mind goes blank. So if you would maybe think about that, that's a, I like that. It's a very affirming, but also sort of articulates why we're doing it. Thank you. Would you, would you, okay, thank you. Yeah. And I want you get the last comment on this because it would be nice if we could get through this page. Otherwise, a brother John is going to be taking the, the rest of this through there. Yeah. That's okay. Just like, yeah. Right there. Yeah. It'd be like it'd be uh, it, it doesn't have to be like put it up on the PowerPoint and, you know, give church history lesson here. But it's just sort of a way of in a very disarming way, which I, I like that. Uh, that kind of rolls with me um, to sort of say this is why we do what we do. Otherwise, we also put it in the bulletin, you know, along the side thing there. We put all that in there and that may not be a bad, bad thing to put in there, especially for the early service because that's a little bit more of a traditional crowd than, uh, than the late service. Okay, I want to keep moving on here, all right? So some of the other ones that sort of show up in terms of these differences and how people do what they do in churches uh, is, uh, is ornately decorated churches and as opposed to plainly decorated churches. All right, ours is very, ours is very beautiful. It's very, uh, but it's not super ornate. All right, if you've ever gone in any of the Lutheran churches like down in the hill country where the, these really amazingly carved altars that came from Germany, you know, or, uh, or different parts of, uh, of, of Europe, and they brought those over with them, or the craftsmen formed them while they were here. And some of us grew up in churches where, where that's how that was. That's beautiful, but it's no less... Uh, reverent, if you will, than a church like ours, which is also very beautiful, but it doesn't have all the uh, intricate kind of stuff that you would see. Highly vested clergy versus non-vested clergy. Now, that's another one that is uh, gaining some uh, gaining some ground in some of the Lutheran churches now who are seeking to reach out to unchurched people who have absolutely no background in church life and are in some ways not antagonistic toward it, but they're rather indifferent toward it. The clergy don't wear ropes. They don't wear vestments. They maybe just wear a suit or maybe they wear blue jeans. Okay. And some of us would look at that and go, Oh gosh, that is not reverent. But in that setting it is see. So that's the difference there. And that's the beauty of uh, partly of, of, of where Lutherans are coming from. So if you look down at point D, before we end today, I want to sort of get to you, help you sort of just sense where, where uh, Lutherans come at this from this perspective, that we look at this in terms of what's called adiaphora. And adiaphora is a word that means these are things that are not commanded by the Bible, nor are they forbidden by the Bible. It's the gray area. And as long as it's not forbidden or commanded in that specific way, thou shalt worship this way. Okay. Thou shalt wear this. Thou shalt clap or not clap. See, as long as it's not dictated that way in terms of scripture, then in Lutheran congregations, it's up to each congregation what it wants to do. That's how we do it. So we don't impose that rule or that regulation on a congregation uh, because the Bible itself doesn't do that. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that we, like, agree with everybody. No, there's a lot of disagreement. Even within churches, there's a lot of disagreement. But you don't have a scriptural backing for it. And that's kind of where we come at it. So as long as there is some good order, decency, that's a good thing to have. 
Each congregation can decide for itself. And it is important to respect the culture of the people. In the South, the culture, the foundational culture in the South is Baptist. In the Northern Midwest, the cultural foundation of, of churchdom is Catholic. Now, you know, there's pockets where you can have um, uh, exceptions to that. In the South, for example, New Orleans is heavily Catholic area. So it's in people's minds of this is what church looks like. And so it's very interesting when you talk to somebody who comes into a Lutheran church from a non-denominational background or a Baptist background in the South, they look at our church and they say, boy, you guys are really Catholic. Boy, you guys, you really go over the top. You're just like, because see there, the, the foundation of their experience is very plain. It's very austere. It's reverent is all get out. It's just way different. See, you don't have those kind of conversations so much up in South Dakota. You don't have those so much up in, uh, in Iowa. That's, it's a different foundational experience from which people are coming. Okay? So the style and substance debates, that, that kind of goes on forever in Lutheran, uh, Lutheran world. Uh, the substance is what we believe, right? But the style in which we impart what we believe or uh, do what we believe might vary from, uh, from church to church. And so my last point there, many a young pastor has made the mistake of fill in the blank. What do you think? What do you think many a young pastor has made the mistake of? Yeah, I changed, but what, what change in particular? Yeah, Mary. Okay, um, uh, my home church is frequently has uh, students from the seminary. Okay. And this was before my father passed away. This young, young student did not stand behind the pulpit uh -oh. to deliver his message. Uh-oh. He, he went out in the he middle. He stood in the center. <laughs> and, and it was like, it was like. Did they run him out? My father said, it doesn't feel like I've been to church today. Oh. Uh, yes. That's a good example of that. See, where your dad would have looked at that and said, that is not just irreverent. That is totally disrespectful. And, and like you said, I haven't been to church today. Yeah. So that would be an example of that. It's in the worship settings that many a young pastor has made the mistake of thinking nobody would notice and it was not a big deal. And the, the truth of it is, everybody notices, and for some people, it is a big deal, okay? So it's, it's that sort of thing. And probably that young pastor thought, well, at the time he thought, you know, this is a great way. I can really connect with people. I don't have the, this bulky sort of uh, wooden thing that's separating me from the people, and we can have this strong connection. That's probably what that guy was thinking, Right. But what maybe he could have done was let somebody know ahead of time that they, he was going to do that. Yeah, Carl. Um, the, our daughter and family go to a Lutheran church up in McKinney near Allen. Yeah. It was started by a former DCE who then went on to pastorate. Right. His service, when, when we had first attended it, we're at, we were absolutely shocked. Yeah. And yet, as we talked about it, it contained every piece of liturgy. Yeah. But it was, it was, he came out in jeans, yeah. roll-up sleeves, yep. 
walked all over the place. But mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the Bible was in, infused in you for the week. Yes. The way he did it. Yeah. And we thought, oh, this, but and, and the people that flocked to it were the young people. Yeah. The young sure. families. Sure. And the children. And, and, and yeah. they just, they really got fed with it. Yeah. And we thought, oh, well, this, this, you know, and he started to grow. It didn't grow very good. Well, right. As of, Today's his last service at this church. Yeah. Because the district is having him plant other churches. Yes, that's how that works. Whole and different Lutheran Missouri Senate Lutheran approach. It's shocking. I know. Planting new church is shocking. Yeah. But again, it's see, it's this idea, and that's what the freedom that we enjoy in a church body where we have more autonomy is that each church can do what it wants to do. But at the same time, we're kind of mindful of the neighbors. I mean, so, you know, that's where you and where sometimes there is a tension point is what happens when somebody in one church goes to another church and they like what goes on in that church. And then they come back to your church and they say, how come we can't do that over there and make a big deal about it? Okay, that's where it, it gets to be problematic. Okay. And that's where then the call goes out, the clarion call that, oh, all Lutheran churches should have liturgy out of the hymnal and all Lutheran churches should do this and all Lutheran churches should do that. Because then if everybody's doing everything the same way, it won't matter where you go. If you go across town or if you go in town, you're getting the same thing. So there's no comparing. Well, that is not going to happen in a million years, right? And it shouldn't. It shouldn't, in my view that we should have that variety. We should have that, uh, that ability to make those decisions locally to do it the way we want to do it. And, and yet we're doing it with being true to our Lutheran uh, roots and the biblical roots that we have. Okay. Well, guess what? Time is totally up. Brother John, you're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to answer every single question that I have raised today uh, in terms of the second opinion. Yeah, if you'll save it. Yeah, because we're running uh, short on time here. All right. So let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that uh, you give to us the gift of great creativity. And creativity shows up in many ways. And sometimes creativity might rub, you know, different uh, preferences uh, in the wrong way. And yet at the same time, it, creativity is such a celebration of that marvelous gift that you give to us. The gospel is itself such a, an, an instigator and an inspirer of creativity. So we thank you, Lord, that you've given to us the word and the different uh, perspectives that each of us can bring toward how to get that word, the true word of the gospel of the love of Jesus. How do we get that to people? How do we get that to people that uh, have been churched their whole life? How do we get that to people that are brand new to uh, the faith? How do we get that to the people that maybe are a bit resistant or confused about the faith? And that's where creativity can come in. So, Lord, uh, I would thank you for the way that Messiah does what it does. I thank you for the way that the churches in, in Allen and, and McKinney and, and Plano and Fort Worth and all the different places that they do what they do, that we can all share the word in the unique ways that we do. So watch over us this week, dear Lord. 
bless our class for the next two weeks under the, under the uh, tutelage of, uh, of uh, John Schweitzer. And uh, also I pray for uh, a peace and calm as, uh, as I go and preach in Fort Worth as well. So uh, we pray all these things in the name of, of the Son that loves us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.